Colossians 1:27 to 29. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lori. And it is a privilege this morning to fill in for Pastor Mark. The Brogups are on vacation up in Michigan, enjoying God's creation and just a chance to relax. And I'm sure you'll be praying for them. Um, But we're going to continue the series in the book of Colossians. We're up to the next section. And before we jump into that, I just wanted to to thank you guys for all of the thank you cards that you have sent to us, staff and elders, over the last few weeks. You've just done an amazing job of encouraging us, and it is a blessing and a privilege to serve here at College Park Church. So take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 27 to 29, and I'd invite you to pray with me as we begin to look at this text. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. We've come to meet you today. Lord Jesus, would you please meet with us now together around your word. In the power of the Spirit, we ask in your name. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at two words, the ministry of the mystery. And as Pastor Mark started last week, we've begun the second big section of the book of Colossians, Jesus-centered ministry. Now, a mystery is something that we all enjoy, don't we? Uh, Especially if it involves some hidden treasure. And you've all enjoyed stories like Treasure Island or Pirates of the Caribbean where You know that there's treasure buried somewhere and you have a map or some information and you try to locate that treasure and you go and find it. I remember as a kid even having dreams, actually, of finding a treasure chest and and taking the lid off of it and sticking my hands deep in all the coins and the jewels and just letting them trickle down my arms. Anybody else as materialistic as me out there? (laughs) But some among us do more than just think about hidden treasure. Because, you know, there is treasure All over the world, buried, hidden, sunk at sea. And I have a good friend that I grew up with in Pakistan, and he is a part-time treasure hunter. He researches Spanish galleons that have been sunken, or Aztec treasures that have been buried in the Andes. And then he'll put together some funding, and he'll go out on a trip for one or two months and try to locate these treasures And he calls me about once a year and the kids always laugh when the phone rings and it's Bill on the other line and they want to know where has Bill been this time. He's been in the the mountains of the Andes. He's been in the South China Sea. He's been in the waters of the Mediterranean. He's been in the coral reefs of the Caribbean, all searching for hidden treasure. And you know what? He hasn't found it yet. But it's out there. But it's a great mystery. In fact, I just I Googled him for fun yesterday and uh One of the articles that came up was German treasure hunters may have found Hitler's gold. Bill Johnson had a a post on this blog 
German treasure hunters were to begin digging today for what they claimed to be plunder buried by the Nazis in a man-made cavern near the Czech border. And I wouldn't be surprised if Bill is there in a few weeks looking for hidden treasure. Well, what is it about treasure that so intrigues us? I think, in essence, it's this, that if we could ever lay our hands on it, we would never need anything else again in our whole lives. Monday morning would come and you could throw the alarm clock away. You wouldn't have to show up for work, but you could buy anything you want, go anywhere you wished, and live exactly as you please. And that's the intrigue and the intoxication of treasure. Well, today we're going to be talking about another treasure that was likewise mysteriously hidden for generations. In fact, we saw last week in verse 26 of Colossians 1 that this was a mystery that was kept literally from ages and from generations hidden by God. Nobody knew where the map was to locate this great treasure. And yet now, verse 26 says, in Paul's age and Paul's generation, God has chosen, verse 27, to make known this mystery. He revealed it now in the first century A.D. And what kind of a mystery was it? Look at the words that Paul uses in verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. He piles on words to, to try to describe for them the magnificence and the splendor and the glory and the extravagant wealth of this treasure that has been hidden for so many hundreds of years. And you can almost feel the excitement in Paul's pen as he begins to write and to reveal what this mystery is. How great, how vast, he says, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So, what is the mystery? Well, Paul tells us in verse 27, three simple words, Christ in you. And then he describes it further by saying the hope of glory. Now, if you yawned when you heard those words or said, wait a minute, I was expecting something a little bit more than that then I would suggest that you've not been, been paying attention for the last several weeks. Because you know what Paul has done? He has just spent most of a chapter describing the glories of Jesus Christ. And he said, for instance, in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it is this Jesus who is in you. It is the Jesus who, by whom all things were created, whether in heaven and on earth. It is the Jesus who holds everything together by His power. It is the Jesus in whom the fullness of the deity is pleased to dwell. It is this Jesus Christ who now lives in you that is the great mystery of the universe. And you say, well, how could that be? My friends, this is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus said, if anybody receives me and believes in my name to them, I will give the right to become children of God. And what do children have? They have the DNA of their parents in them. And, and we have the DNA, the seed of God inside of us when we receive him and believe in his name, according to 1 John chapter 3. In fact, John there is describing what Jesus himself promised in these words. Jesus said, on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Jesus is promising that that day will come when he will not be outside of people, just talking to them, just among them, but he will actually be inside them. And they couldn't understand that. He goes on to say, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. 
My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He says, the father and I will come to dwell inside of you. It's the same thing he said to the church of Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is the glory of the mystery that God in all of his infinite glory and majesty and the son of God's person would come to dwell in this bag of dirt and bones. Can you imagine the magnificence of that? And you might say, well, didn't the Jews have any intimation of that? Didn't they know that this was going to happen? The answer is no. That's why it was a mystery that was hidden for generations and for ages. God had revealed bits and pieces of his plan to them. He had told them that I am going to be your God and I will put my name among you and I will dwell with you, he said. But for this great God whom the Israelites feared, who dwells in unapproachable light, for this God who, when he came down to visit his people on Mount Sinai, came down with the shout of a trumpet and with thunder and lightning and the quake of an earthquake that shook the whole mountain so that the people trembled in God's presence. For this holy God who lived somewhere between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, where only one person could go only one day a year, only after proper preparation, for this God to come and take up residence inside our bodies was something beyond imagination for the Jewish people. And what Paul is saying now is that God had planned this from all of eternity. And now in this age, in the first century A.D., he has chosen to reveal this mystery to the saints. That God himself in the person of his son, by the power of the spirit, is going to come and actually live inside everybody who repents of their sin and turns in faith to Jesus Christ. This was the sacred secret hidden in past ages and now revealed to the saints. Paul goes on to describe this as the hope of glory. You might say, what's that mean? Well, I think he's looking backwards and forwards at the same time. He's looking backwards to the Garden of Eden, where he created Adam and Eve. Do you remember how? In his image. They had the glory of God in the garden. And they enjoyed perfect harmony and absolute blissful existence, needing nothing. They had the treasure, everything that they would always ever need. And yet what happened? After that first rebellion underneath the tree, the glory of God among mankind was shattered. His image was broken. And today we only faintly see the echoes of the glory of God in the affairs of man. Instead of living in that condition that he designed for us in the garden, what do we find? We find broken relationships. We find people addicted to sinful behaviors. We find fractured societies. We see warring nations. We see injustice and violence and oppression around the world. There is pain so deep, even in this room, that it's unspeakable. And there is sickness so profound that it seems incurable. And yet he says that I am going to restore that glory as I put Jesus Christ inside you. I'm going to restore what I began at the garden, and that is the hope of glory that we have. And so that's the backward look. But there's a forward look as well in this expression, that the day is coming when we will receive our inheritance as saints, when we will enter ourselves into the glory of God. And he talks about that in chapter 3, verse 4, where he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Oh, my friends, how desperately we need the hope of the glory of God. 
because we live in a fallen world. I had the privilege on Tuesday afternoon to be with Al Archambault just a few hours before he passed into glory. And it was a struggle to see his body there just decimated by cancer, struggling for breath, and to see his wife grieving, and, and then to hear his daughter say these words in tears, I hate cancer. Because you see, the glory of God has been shattered among us. And we're suffering from all the effects of the, of the sin and the rebellion that we've had against God. But do you know what? For Al now, he's experiencing this. The hope of the glory of God. And that is there for each one of us in whom Jesus Christ dwells. The indwelling, exalted Christ is a guarantee that one day we're going to be restored to that glory that God has designed for us. Amen. Praise God for that. And that's why Paul says that, that the sufferings that we endure now are not worthy to be compared with that glory that we will receive on that day when God makes everything new again. Christ in us, the down payment of the restoration of glory, beginning that process now and bringing it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. My friends, what a treasure that is. But that's not all. There's something even more remarkable in this verse. Did you notice this phrase? How great among the Gentiles. And if you memorized this verse the first week that we were working on our memory work, you probably puzzled over this expression. What does he mean, how great... Among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery. Well, I think he meant simply this, that the Jews understood that salvation from God was to revolve around them. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption. And notice the word he uses, the glory. To the Israelites belong the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and so forth. This all belonged to the Israelites. And what was the place of the Gentiles? Paul says in Ephesians 2 that they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no what? No hope. And without God in the world. And if you are a Gentile like me this morning, you need to understand this, that God's original plan of salvation revolved around the Jewish nation. And so what Paul is saying here is that the deepest riches of this mystery are simply this, that God has thrown wide open the gates of salvation. And even though the Messiah has come from the Jewish nation, he has come for all nations and all peoples. And so what he's saying to the Colossians is this. The real mystery about this thing is this, that Christ is in you Gentile Colossians. That's what really the mystery is. The Gentiles whom the Syrophoenician woman understood were like the dogs under the table, just hoping that a few crumbs would fall off the table for them to eat. That was our place without hope and without God in the world. And yet the mystery is this, that in Christ we have been brought near. In Christ we have become fellow citizens and, and fellow partakers of the hope of the glory of God. And those dogs underneath the table hoping for a scrap of food have now been invited to come and to sit at the banquet table and to feed to their hearts content on the Lamb of God. My friends, do you understand the riches of the mystery that God has for us? Well, that is the revelation that God made known in the first century, that he was throwing wide open the gates of salvation so that all might come in and by faith and repentance of sin, receive Jesus Christ inside of them to live and dwell forever. And what a beautiful picture that is. You know, the, the book could almost end at verse 27, couldn't it? 
Wouldn't that be neat if it just ended there? All just reveling in the glory of Christ in us and enjoying the blessings that he has for us. You might even write in and they lived happily ever after. What a beautiful picture. And yet, what would be wrong with that picture? Well, what would be wrong with the picture of a little holy ghetto over Christian club would be simply this, that the Jesus who lives in us is the great shepherd of the sheep. And do you remember what the shepherd of the sheep does? He seeks and saves the lost. Jesus is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so this Jesus that now lives inside of Paul and who has provided for the reconciliation of all people to himself This Jesus is now driving Paul to go beyond reveling in the glory of worship and fellowship to the ministry of the mystery. Because the problem is that this great mystery is still a mystery for much of the world. And so that's why Paul goes on to the second section of our text this morning and begins to describe the ministry of the mystery. Let's take a look at these verses. There's so much in here in these two verses. There's a perfect, complete picture of what an effective ministry should look like. But you need to understand why he's talking about ministry. Christ is, yes, for us to enjoy, but he is far more than that. He is for us to share. And we need to continue to share him until he's a mystery no longer for everybody on the face of the earth. And here's how Paul went about his mystery. There are five characteristics of an effective ministry in verses 28 and 29. First of all, the heart of the ministry Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim. Don't you love the simplicity of that? You know, there were false teachers around, and Mark introduced us to these when he introduced the book of Colossians. They had their fancy systems of teaching. They had their their rules and regulations that he talks about in chapter 2. They had their philosophies and the traditions of men. It was a very complicated system of religion. And Paul says, I don't have any of that. I don't get involved in that one thing I know and one thing I do. And that is, I proclaim Christ. He said, among the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. There were many issues that Paul could have talked about, many problems he could have dealt with. And yet the heart of his ministry was this, to proclaim Jesus Christ wherever he went and whomever he saw. The heart of the ministry is preaching Jesus. A man once went to visit Spurgeon's church and he came back home and a a friend asked him, well, what did you think of Spurgeon? The man thought for a minute and he said, Mr. Spurgeon, he said, well, I forgot to inquire about him. He said, my attention was so drawn to the Savior of whom he preached. What a mark of a ministry that the attention goes to Jesus and not to any man or to any list of rules and regulations. And that's what Paul did. And that's what we try to do here at College Park. We try to keep the main one, the main thing. That's one of our core values here. Because it's all about proclaiming Jesus Christ. And that is the heart of the ministry. Secondly, what was the method that Paul used? How did he do this? In two ways. Warning and teaching. Look at verse 28 again. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now, the word for warning here is the Greek word nutheteo. And if some of you have been through the NANC training, you probably know what that word means. We get the word nuthetic counseling from that, and it it means to admonish or to warn. It means to literally to set correct what has been made crooked, to put right what's out of line. 
Uh, let me give you an example of Nuthateo. I was a number of years ago in Pakistan running some errands and I was at the post office and it was raining and I, I was running back to the car and, and I sort of slipped as I came around the corner of the car and I, I jabbed my hand against the door of the car and when I pulled my hand back, this finger was at about a 45 degree angle right here at the middle joint. And I looked at that thing and I thought, oh no, this is going to kill my jump shot. And then I began to feel the pain and I began to think, what am I going to do with this? I mean, it was grotesquely out of line. Well, I went to the doctor, which is usually a good thing to do. I thought he was going to put me under, you know, do a three-hour surgery and I'd be in a cast for months and then I'd be all right. Well, he didn't have to do any of that. He, he took a look at it, a good Pakistani doctor. And you know what he did to... He, he knew that te'od my finger. And you know what that's like? He did one of these. And then it snapped. And you know what? It was in place again. It was straight. What had he done? He had corrected my finger. Now, what Paul is saying is, this is what I do when I proclaim Christ. Because it's so easy for people to get out of line, either in your beliefs or in your behavior. And so part of my job as proclaiming Christ is to come and set you straight again. He, he said in Titus to admonish the heretic who would sow division among you. If somebody's teaching doctrine that's false, they need to be warned so that people are brought back in line with correct teaching. He also said in Thessalonians, admonish the idle person. And in 2 Thessalonians, admonish those who are disobedient because their behavior is out of line. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with proclaiming Christ? That sounds more like meddling. Ah, but here's the difference. You see, if Christ is in you, then you're life and your doctrine need to match that of Jesus Christ. And if they don't, somebody needs to call you out on that so that you can see where you're beginning to go astray and you can be brought back in line with the teaching and the life of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul did. He told the Ephesian elders that for three years, night and day, I have not stopped admonishing each of you. How would you like to have been in Paul's church? But you know what? This is a job not just for pastors. In fact, in 3.16, he's going to say that you're supposed to admonish one another. Because the problem is that there's only a few of us pastors and there's a couple thousand of you. There's no way we could know where you're going off the rails. And so you need to be in small groups. You need to be in fellowships where people can bring you up short and call you out if you start to get out of line. And you need to be prepared to do that for other people as well. That's what Christian maturity is all about. And Paul engaged in the ministry of proclaiming Christ partly by admonishing those who were out of line. But secondly, by teaching everyone. And this is perhaps the more public ministry, the proclamations of the truths of Jesus Christ and instruction in how to follow. And that's what we're doing right now. That's what we do in our ABFs, what many of you are involved in men's and women's Bible studies, because this is how ministry goes on by the teaching of the word of God. And how does he do it? He says, with all wisdom. You see, it takes a great deal of wisdom to admonish, doesn't it? Because it's so easy to become judgmental or to impose our standards on other people. And they're not the standards of Christ or of the, the word. And it's so difficult to teach effectively, is it not? To, to adapt, not the content of our message, but the, the delivery of it so that it meets the needs of every single different group of people that we talk to. And that's what Paul did throughout the book of Acts. 
Same message, different presentation, because God gave him the wisdom to do that. And here he's taking another subtle jab at those false teachers who who claimed a divine super wisdom from God that allowed them to, to be the ones that had the key to the mystery. He said, actually, all of the wisdom that we need is in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that next week with Joe in chapter 2, verse 3. Because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of what? Of wisdom and knowledge. So when Christ fills me, he fills me partly with his wisdom. And he gives me wisdom to warn and to admonish and to teach as I proclaim Christ. Notice the goal, thirdly, of this ministry, again in verse 28. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. The word there means to finish or complete. Jesus used the word in Luke 13 of his course when he had finished his course. When somebody runs a hundred meter dash, what do they do at 110 meters? They stop running because their course is what? It's perfect. It's completed. It's finished. When somebody is about 20 years old, physically they have done what? They have grown up and there is no more growing up to do, at least in the body. Some of us still need to grow up in other ways. But that's the word that's used here, of a mature person. And that's why the ESV uses the word mature. It's somebody who spiritually has become like Christ, grown up into his image. And that's Paul's goal in all of his ministry. He gave us a pretty good picture of that in verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's a mature person. Or back in verse 10 in his great prayer, somebody who's walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every respect is someone who's a mature Christian who has grown up into all of the fullness of Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's goal as he proclaims and admonishes and teaches. Notice he says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, Paul had this keen sense that one day God was going to ask an accounting from him of all of the talent and the time and the knowledge that he'd entrusted to Paul. He was going to call Paul on the carpet and say, Paul, what have you done with all of that? And Paul on that day was going to have to come back and tell God, here's what has been produced by the talents that you have given me. And so what he's talking about in verse 28 is I want something to present to God to to validate what I've been doing for the last decades with all of the talents that God has given me. He says, and what I'd like to present to God on that day is you, Colossians, as a mature church and say, God, look, this isn't anything I've done, but I've worked at it. And here's the fruit of my labor. Here is the return on your investment in me. These believers in Colossians who are now mature in their Christian faith. You see, the apostolic task is not finished with the conversion of people. In many cases, that's the easy part. The hard part is getting Christ to be formed in them. In fact, Paul talks about it in the book of Galatians. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Now, he didn't really know what that was like, but he probably had a pretty good idea. And he said, it's the same thing here. I'm I'm working so hard to give birth to people who, and then he goes on in that same verse to say, until Christ is formed in you. He says, I'm working so hard so that Christ might become clearly and, and solidly developed inside your character. So that when you are squeezed, for instance, by the pressures of life, you don't come out, but Christ comes out. 
so that the life of Christ and the life of you are indistinguishable. That's Christian maturity. And that's the point for which I work and I strive, Paul says. Well, fourthly, what is the scope of his ministry? Again, in verse 28, three times in this one verse, he uses this Greek phrase, panta anthropos, every man, every man, every man. And we need to understand what he means by that. I think there's two things to notice here. First of all, the scope is for every one. You know what? There are no freeloaders in the church of Jesus Christ. You can't just come along for the ride into heaven. No, that that doesn't work. You cannot just cherry pick your spirituality. And one of the dangers of a large church is that, that you can actually do that here at Collins Park Church. You can come and sit way back there somewhere and, and you can leave right at the end of the service and nobody really knows what's going on in your life. And, and by the way, if you've come today and you're just cherry picking your spirituality, welcome. We're glad you're here. You're, you're among friends. But God's design is this in Paul's vision is that every single row, every single chair, every single person clear to the very back, he could present mature in Jesus Christ. No exceptions. So that's part of what it means. But the other part, I think, of what this means is that this ministry is not just for everyone. It's also for everyone in the whole world. You see, it's not an arcane doctrine that's wrapped up in some shroud of secrecy, but it's more like computer shareware is what Paul says here. And computer shareware is available free for everybody. But think about that for just a minute. Does everybody have every program that's ever been written on their computer? Now, how do you have to what do you have to do to get shareware onto your computer? You've got to know about it and then you've got to log on and you've got to download that program, right? And so that's what Paul is saying here. Christ has provided reconciliation for everybody. It's freeware, it's shareware out there, but the only way they can connect with it is if they hear about it. And so my ministry is to take this message to every man in the whole world, is what he's saying. And did you notice he's already referred to this a couple times in chapter 1? Look at verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. And did you catch the amazing statement at the end of of 23, the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation or to every creature under heaven? Paul pretty near accomplished this task of taking the mystery of Christ to every person on the face of the earth. And we need to understand that the book of Colossians is written entirely in a missionary setting. Paul was in the city of Ephesus and there he planted a church and a man named Epaphras came to faith in Christ. Paul didn't have a chance to go to Colossae, so he sent Epaphras there to begin a ministry. And, and through his work, the church was started in Colossians. What is in Paul's mind is this, that the, the mystery is so great and so all-encompassing that it has to be proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And so he's doing everything in his power to accomplish that. And we need to remind ourselves that as great as our needs might be here at College Park Church and as many needs as we have in our city and in our neighborhoods, the needs continue to circle out from there. And the ripples of need go all around the world. And God wants us today, I believe, to, to broaden the scope of our ministry. So that, like Paul, we have a vision that every person would be able to understand the mystery of Christ potentially in them.
the hope of glory. God does neat things to expand our ministry. Last month, he expanded the ministry of the church in Columbus and welcomed you guys in Columbus. Do you know how he did that? By sending a devastating flood of water through that area. And what did that do for the church in Columbus? Suddenly, their sphere of ministry expanded. And now they're, they're in hundreds of homes in the Columbus area because God expanded the scope of their ministry as they reached out in love and in practical demonstration of the gospel. And God wants us to keep expanding the horizons of our, of our ministry so that we can eventually take this mystery to all peoples on the face of the earth. And the question for us this morning is, do we have Paul's vision of the scope of this ministry? Well, you say, I'm having a hard time just witnessing in my neighborhood. I, I don't know how I can begin to do anything more than that. Well, we come to the final point of this message, and that is this, the power for the ministry. Does that sound hard? I mean, to proclaim Christ to every creature under heaven, to, to labor as if in childbirth until Christ is formed in each of our congregants. Oh, that is an impossible task. Well, there's a secret to that task. And, and here, let me show it to you. You ready? This is the secret and it's verse 29. Okay, everybody got that? <laughs> I, I promise this is the secret to how you do ministry. And if that looks like Greek to you, it's because it is. But I want to show you this morning that you can read Greek. You really can. Uh, and what I've done is put underneath those words uh, sort of an English transliteration. And I want to explain those words. Some of them you'll recognize. You see agonize in there and energy and dynamite. Let me just walk you through this verse and we're going to find out the secret of power in ministry. The first word is one that we don't have in English. Copio. That's a word that is... Is used for hard physical labor. Paul says, I labor. In 2 Timothy, he says, it's like the hardworking farmer who labors. Works from sunup to sundown. It's that back-breaking toil that when you're done, you fall into bed and it feels like you've just taken a beating. That's how hard copio is. Paul says, I labored. He worked hard. He loved this word. He talked about it many times about his ministry. He rolled up his sleeves and he threw all of his energy into the task of proclaiming Christ to every man and woman on the face of the earth. Paul didn't just trust that the grace of God was going to fill in the gaps for where he was too lazy to do the work. Paul threw himself and every fiber of his being into the ministry of the gospel. Now, the second word, he says, I labor agonizing. That's the next word there. Agonizamanas. And if you want to learn Greek, by the way, sign up with Job Artemis. It's a fun language. You'll enjoy being able to dig into it. But actually, you don't really need that because I'm just giving you a lesson today. He says, I labor struggling. The picture here is of an athletic contest. And the difference between kapio and agonizamanas is that kapio is just hard work. But in agonizing, there's an opponent. There is an enemy. There is some opposition that you have to overcome by the force of your power. Now, I see agonizamai uh, every day that I go to the Y and work out. Because what's happening there? As people are pushing weights at the Y, are they doing it with a smile on their face? You know, the 10th and the 11th and the 12th reps, they are grunting and groaning and pushing. They're in agony. Because they're preparing for a competition. We've seen Aganizumai on our TVs this past week as you've watched the Olympic trials. 
And I saw a race, it's actually a week ago last night, the 400 individual medley swimming. Did anybody catch that race? Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte were almost neck and neck at the last wall. And I noticed that as they turned on that last wall, Phelps turned and stayed underwater longer than Lochte. And apparently they can go faster underwater. And, and by the time they came up, he was about a half a body length ahead of Lochte, and that's about the length that he won the race by. And the next day I said to Todd Dawkins, who is our interim high school director here and is a swim coach, I said, did you see that amazing race? And I said, he won it just because he stayed underwater longer and was able to get ahead in that last length. And Todd said, yeah, but do you know how hard that was? That guy's just swum 350 meters for all he's worth, and he's holding his breath, and he is in what? He is in agony under the water because he has one goal in mind, and that is to win the race. This is what Paul says. I labor agonizing. And I've been challenged this week as I've thought about, you know, thinking about a 40-hour work week and comp days and all these things that we talk about. We're a long way from this in our day and age. And actually, if this is where it ended, it would be kind of depressing, wouldn't it? If all you could think about was labor and agonizing. But fortunately, the verse doesn't end there. You know, some of you might have thought that I got the title of the sermon backwards. It's the ministry of the mystery. Some of you may may have thought it should have been the mystery of the ministry. And the mystery of the ministry is what in the world do you guys do all week long? You know, you, you preach on Sunday and then you've got the rest of the week off. What's going on? Well, it should be no mystery for the true minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true minister should labor with everything that he or she has and agonize in the middle of that labor. And this can include everybody, not just ministers of the gospel, because Paul said that the church will only reach maturity when every single part of the body does its work. So you have a role in this as well. And your role might be like that of a minister. Alexander McLaren would get up early in the morning when he heard the the, the boots of the cobblers going down the street. And he would say to himself, how can I be asleep in bed when these men are going to work to support their families? And so he would rouse himself up and he would begin the gospel ministry. But for you, it might be something more like taking care of kids at home, in which you need to labor and agonize. And maybe you're like Susanna Wesley this morning. She had 19 children, nine of whom died in infancy, but that still left her 10 to raise. She's an amazing story. Her husband was gone for over a year, and she wrote these words to him. She says, in your long absence, I cannot but look upon every soul you leave under my charge as a talent committed under a trust. As a mother, I felt I ought to have done more than I had yet done. I resolved to begin with my own children, in which I observe the following method. I take such a proportion of time as I can spare every night to discourse with each child apart. On Monday, I talk with Molly. On Tuesday, with Hetty. Wednesday, with Nancy. Thursday, with Jackie. Friday, with Patty. Saturday, with Charles. And then along came John and a couple of others. And I don't know where she fit them into her schedule. Meanwhile, she planted a church in her home and and, and one of her sons grew up to be John Wesley. And John Wesley knew how to labor and to agonize in the ministry. John Wesley rode 20 to 50 miles virtually every single day of his ministry. And it was not in a Toyota. It was on the back of a horse. And he would read volumes as he went along on the trails. And he would preach three times a day for 20 years. He wrote 233 books 
He spoke and preached in German, Latin and Italian as well as English. And when he reached the age of 83, he became disappointed because he realized that he could no longer read more than 15 hours a day before his eyes started to hurt him. And when he was 86, he was upset that he couldn't preach any longer more than two times a day. Now, you read about somebody like that, and it's about enough to send you up the wall, right? I think God gives us differing amounts of energy. But what I want us to understand is that he expects each of us, where he's put us, to labor and to agonize in the ministry of the mystery because it is so critically important. And yet, I'm so glad the verse doesn't end there. We labor and we agonize, the next word, with the energy. You can see that. But then the next word is the word I love, of him. You see that? We don't have to labor with our energy. We labor with the energy of him. And then Paul goes on to explain that, which he works so mightily or like dynamite inside of us. You see what Paul's saying? He says, I work my tail off, but I don't work in my energy. I work in his energy. And you see, when you and I run out of energy... Whose energy do we run out of? Ours. Because his energy is inexhaustible. He can provide whatever we need. And all we have to do is come and draw it from him. You know, our problem is that we're like batteries. We we have a certain length of energy and then we like fade out and we're done. But God is saying there's actually something inside you more like a nuclear reactor. There's something that produces energy inside of you. And who is that? Well, did you catch the first part, the mystery? It is Christ in us. Christ who created the universe by the word of his mouth and holds it all together. That energy is so powerfully at work within us, enabling us to labor and to agonize in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. George Verwer, the founder of Operation Mobilization, who, by the way, will be our speaker this year at Missions Conference in October. You're not going to want to miss that. But he said this that I love. My spiritual batteries run down all the time. And if God doesn't meet me every single morning, I might as well hang it up. But then, and he smiles with a twinkle in his eyes, he says this. God has met me every single morning for 27 years. How do we tap into that dynamo of energy that is Jesus Christ? He tells us in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. My friends, we need to get down to that deep mystery of Christ in us. And we need to fellowship with Him. And we need to worship Him. And we need to gaze upon Him. And as we do that, He will fill us with His energy so that we can go and work. It's not like the kid that's playing out in the backyard and comes in and says, Mom, is dinner ready? I'm hungry. Mom says, no, it's not ready. So he goes back out and plays hard again for another 45 minutes. Some of us want our energy like that. We want to come to God and get our energy and then go back and do our thing. God says, no, you need to come and wait on me. And if you'll wait in my presence, I will fill you and energize you with a dynamic energy that will enable you to go and do every single thing that I have called you specifically to do. It's a great job, but we have a great Christ. And so who is it that works? Is it God or is it us? The answer is, of course, it's both. 
And it seems to be as we labor and as we agonize that God then supplies us. He, he resupplies us with his energy. And that dynamite begins to explode in us and we begin to be able to do more and more for him as we begin to get engaged in the ministry of the mystery. Oswald Chambers said this, if I am devoted to the cause of humanity only, I will soon be exhausted and come to the place where my love will falter. But if I love Jesus Christ personally and passionately, I can serve humanity, though men treat me as a doormat. The power for our ministry is in Jesus Christ who dwells in us. Well, you've come this morning from a variety of perspectives and challenges and with a variety of needs. And I don't know exactly what you need to take away from this message, but let me suggest four items on the smorgasbord for you to think about taking away today. Maybe you've come today and you're in need of possessing Jesus Christ. You would say, you know what? I have been trying to live my life on my own and it is not working. So I'm so far away from the Garden of Eden that that's just not even conceivable for me. And, and heaven certainly is not in my future at all. The good news today is that God offers you hope in the person of Jesus Christ. If you will turn from your sins and put your faith in him, he will take up residence in your life and he will do a remodeled job that you could not even imagine. He will make everything new. And you can say, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. But you need to come in faith and repentance to him today. And if, if you would like to possess Christ today, I would love to speak with you after the service. I'll be up here at the front. Come and talk to me or one of the elders about that. Perhaps your need today is more along the lines of needing to perfect Christ in your life. You would say, a long time ago, I received him and I believed in him and I became a child of God. And he's in there somewhere, but he sure isn't very fully formed in me. In fact, if you think about it, I'm, I'm a lot like a child in a lot of ways. I'm demanding my own way. I'm, I'm just sticking to what I've always done. And if we squeeze you, it's not Christ that comes out. It's yourself. You need to become mature in Christ and grow up and let him be fully formed in you. What are those areas that you need to work on? That you need to let Christ fill in and live through you as you die to yourself? Or maybe today you need to be more involved in proclaiming Christ. If you look at your life, you'd say, no, I've enjoyed the riches of this mystery. I love to come and worship. I love to fellowship with Jesus. But in effect, I'm keeping him a mystery to everybody around me and around the world. I need to expand my circle of ministry. And I'd like to take this mystery and I'd like to unlock it for somebody else. Maybe you need to get involved in VBS in a week or so here and unlock it for some kids. Maybe you need to teach Sunday school here. Maybe you need to head down to kids' church and get involved down there. Maybe God would have you widen that circle even farther to some nation of the world where God is not yet known through Jesus Christ. And God is speaking to you today about expanding the scope of your ministry. In November, we'll be taking a trip to India, the country with the largest number of unreached people groups in the world. Because we want God to use College Park Church to, to reach every man with the mystery of Jesus Christ. And there's room for a few more on that trip. If you'd like to come, contact us here at the church office. And finally, maybe you need the power of Christ. Maybe you've been serving your heart out and you are just wrung out and flat out empty. You feel like you need to pull up to the gas tank and you need to fill up again. 
Let me tell you, you don't need to do that because the oil refinery, the oil well is inside you. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. All you need to do is get in touch with Him. You need to wait on Him. And there may be other things you need to do. You may need to take a little break. You may need to get a checkup medically or whatever. But most of all, what you need is to come in touch with Christ and to wait on Him. And then to let Him energize you with that dynamic energy that He alone possesses. And then He will send you out to be involved in the ministry of the mystery that He has called you specifically to do. You see, the problem is that this mystery is still a mystery for far too many people in our world today. Would you resolve this morning to enjoy the treasure of Christ in you, the hope of glory? To revel in fellowship with Him and to drink deeply of the fountain of life He offers you. And then would you get up from that and begin to engage in the ministry of the mystery? And use these words that Paul said, I can do all things. I can do all things, but through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray. I want to just give you a moment to reflect on these four application points. Do you need to possess Christ today for the first time? That treasure is right in front of you. But grab it today because... You have no guarantee of tomorrow. Do you need to perfect Christ in your life? Confess your childishness, your rebellion to Him. and Let His life become mature in you. Let Christ be fully formed in you. Or has God spoken to you about the need to proclaim Him? To widen the circle and the scope of your ministry. Tell him you'll do that. And maybe you just need to come this afternoon, this evening, and spend some time with that glorious mystery, that Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives in you. And let him recharge your batteries. Let him energize you with all of that powerful energy that he so powerfully works in us. And then will you go and labor and sweat and agonize with His energy for His kingdom, for His glory. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You agonized for us and You won our salvation on the cross. Help us now as we delight in that, as we delight in You, to not withhold that mystery from others, but to work hard at proclaiming it in every way that we can so that You might be lifted up and that all men and women and children might be drawn to you. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.